Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. Before introducing today's guests, I encourage you to check out the Indigenous Environmental Network at ienearth.org. IEN is an alliance of indigenous peoples whose mission is to protect the sacredness of Earth Mother from contamination and exploitation by strengthening, maintaining, and respecting indigenous teachings and natural laws. Consider donating what you can afford at ienearth.org. My guest today is filmmaker and sacred places activist Toby McLeod. Having produced and directed important films such as In the Light of Reverence and The Sacred Lands Film Project, Toby has committed the last 40 years of his life to earning the trust of several indigenous peoples around the globe whose intimate relationship with the land outlives the colonial purging of these sacred places in the name of progress and proselytizing that has led to irreparable loss to generations of people native to these lands, thousands of years before they were pioneered by white latecomers seeking fortune at any cost. Toby's openness, humility, and dedication to the seemingly endless and arduous road through the complicated history of these long-established cultures has touched me at the core, and my hope is that this conversation will impact you at the same level it has me. And with that, I give you my first of hopefully many discussions with filmmaker, activist, and lover of our sacred Mother Earth, Toby McLeod. Is this lighting reasonable? No, you look great. You've got a nice, like, soft, like, fill from the natural window. You look great, man. Okay, cool. Like, you've, I've got some boxes of files that says you're busy, <laughs> you're deep in projects. So, yeah, yeah, man. It's all true. <laughs> it's, it's all true. This is real life. Toby, I... First of all, thank you so much, man, for just making the time for this. Heidi Gustafson told me, like, before I even talked to her, she's like, Ben, you need to talk to Toby. What he's doing is right up your alley, and I promise you it will be worth your time. And after my time with, with Heidi, I was like, okay, anything she says must be worth, <laughs> worth its weight in gold. So I'm not going to even hesitate. I invited you, and I watched the Sacred Land Film Project which is four one-hour episodes that you produced and directed, right? Right. Okay, and then I watched In the Light of Reverence, which you, you recommended, and boy, I just have so much. I, I mean, I could talk for a long time about this stuff. So first of all, let's just set up the, the scene here. Tell, tell us where you are, where you're calling from. Paint a picture for us. All right. <clears throat> well, I moved from, I'm an East Coast, you know, kid, uh, grew up in New England. Uh, my dad changed jobs. So then I went to high school near Chicago, North Shore, privileged suburb. But mm. I hated the East Coast pretty much all my life. I just didn't like the status and class sort of consciousness and sort of whatever. So I moved to California. I came to Berkeley to go to the graduate school of journalism. And um, not being a city person, I ended up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a little town called La Honda, where I lived, lived for about 30 years. Um, but then um, the Sacred Land Film Project has a nonprofit sponsor, which is the uh, Earth Island Institute, which was founded by David Brower, who's a well-known, you know, a sort of a father of the environmental movement. And um, at a certain point, 
just as my kids were reaching high school age, living in the really rural area, um, we built in Berkeley the David Brower Center, which is this platinum lead building with a bunch of environmental groups in it. And so I had a chance to have a real office for the first time in my life. So my wife and I moved back to Berkeley. So I'm coming to you from Berkeley and I lived here for 10 years. And that office gave me the opportunity to, um, to make the global Standing on Sacred Ground film series with a, with a community of artists and map makers and musicians and editors, um, which is what it took to make a global film series. We made In the Light of Reverence in the basement in La Honda with a wow. bunch of, with my editor sleeping there overnight, you know, and um, I mean, it was, you know, it was challenging, but it was a beautiful rural environment to make the first film. So now I'm in Berkeley, California. Long answer to your question. No, that's a great answer. And uh, a, a quick little setup as well, a little background. You're writing a memoir at this moment, right? Yeah, yeah. So 40 years of um, asking indigenous people to explain things to my to my uneducated you know kind of racist you know um bread <clears throat> you know i mean we all are aware now more of ever that what we come from yeah but 40 years ago i started hanging around with the hopi and the navajo and at that time i was interested in coal mining i mean i was i was i was drawn Whoa. by a major environmental insult and what I experienced was really open-hearted people who had a great sense of humor in spite of hundreds of years of, you know, colonial murder and oppression. Yeah. And um, they were not interested in filmmakers. They were not interested in outsiders, you know, telling their story. But, but I was just kind of patient and persistent. And I was really curious. I mean, I think the key, the key thing was over all these years, um, as a journalist, I was trained to listen, I guess. And I felt like there was a way more interesting history, for example, that I was hearing from the Hopi mm. than what I had just spent thousands of dollars to learn about at Yale, majoring Whoa. in history. And so Whoa. I hung around and, you know, basically wow. what happened was uh, they started explaining their view of the landscape to me. And I was welcomed at ceremonies where cameras were left in the car, you know, and um, I watched them pray for rain and then it rained. Um, wow. And uh, so anyway, I had these experiences over many years and only a certain amount of it could fit into films. Mm -hmm. We were, when we, when, you know, when you're filming an elder on film, you do an 11 minute interview because it's really expensive. Then we hmm. video evolved. So eventually we were doing two hour interviews with, with video. But in any event, for a public television film, what the elder says gets cut down to 45 seconds, and that's really long. Mm. So, so I have years. I mean, I could show you, like, I didn't mean to do this, right? But like, you know, like, these are, the, these are just a few of the journals where I wrote down everything they were telling me, you know? Wow. And then these are my... You know, these are field notebooks where I took notes, everything. Mm. You know, that's like 10 notebooks. So the point of all that, and then I was also doing audio recordings. And, you know, so I was told all this amazing stuff. And my basic questions were, 
why are sacred places important to your culture? Like, what do you want those people with bulldozers and private property signs and the rock climbers and the new agers and the Christians who want to build churches? What do you <laughs> want them to know yeah. about why these places should be left alone and you should mm. be free to do your ceremony in privacy? And, all. and they were like, okay, we'll talk about that. You know? Wow. And that um, opened the door. And the, the other, the, the thing, the two, the two things that I would add are, um, we knew all along that this was an honor and that this stuff was taboo and sacred and secret. And that mm. amongst the Hopi, they would say to me, one clan doesn't tell another clan the answer yeah. to your questions. We, we yeah. don't even tell each other some of this stuff. That's the protocol. So I yeah. knew I was like in a very delicate area, but two things were going on. Um, Native Americans in the United States tried to use the legal system to protect sacred places in the 1980s. Jimmy Carter, when he was president, as a, it's a little bit like the Washington Redskins giving up their, their racist you know, logo. Yeah. Um, but back then, Jimmy Carter, after a wave of activism, Alcatraz, Wounded Knee, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the Vine Deloria's books led to a moment where Jimmy Carter um, signed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which basically was not really a law. It was sort of a statement that the government was a little bit uncomfortable repressing American Indian ceremonies, which yeah. it had admitted that it was doing for a hundred years. And yeah. that let's have American Indian religious freedom. Okay, so then the native people started trying to use that to protect sacred places because they mm -hmm. thought, well, if a government and a, and, a, and a country is founded on religious freedom, and now it's a little bit of a law, maybe they'll use the law to protect the San Francisco Peaks, for example, the Hopi yeah. sacred town mm -hmm. from a ski resort. Well, it turned out that it was a law, it was not a law that had any teeth. And it was also in a Christian private property context, freedom of religion means you can believe whatever you want. And right. you, can really, you can really say whatever you want about believing whatever you want. And yeah. if you want to do ceremonies, you can do your ceremonies. You want to do them in a national park, you got to pay to get in and you got to get a permit still. But you can't use the law to protect a mountain because mm. that's, you know, and so that's the practice. That's the part that Native Americans still want, you know, non-Native people to understand is that the place is sacred and their thousands of years relationship with it is super important and in ways that are non-material. And so mm. basically they lost all these lawsuits. And so when I showed up saying, well, I'm, a, I'm into public education and I'm into history told yeah. by the community, maybe, yeah. maybe there's a way to do something that's not violating the taboos and the sacred. So yeah. that was one thing. The other thing that was going on, in, in addition to losing legal cases and having sacred places really threatened by new technologies, mining, you know, going further and further into remote areas, ski resorts, all this stuff, you know, they were watching climate change. They were watching the earth basically crying out and saying, people are killing me. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I've been told, you've watched Standing on Sacred Ground. So the first story is in the Altai Republic in Siberia. And they told me, we were in the middle of that pilgrimage. You know, we filmed that pilgrimage, it's snowing and we're up going up a sacred mountain. 
Daniil Mamuyev, he said to us then, there is no way I would be taking you here if we were not observing earth changes that are really mm. worry, worrying us. And we feel yeah. that we need to try to get the message out to, to warn people that you guys got to change the way your culture is designed. You have to stop yes. carbon emissions, you know, yeah. and there's so many more things they'd love to warn us about technology, yeah. nuclear weapons, nuclear power, pesticides, you know, but um, I think climate change and changing weather has just upset indigenous people to the level where they're willing. So again, long answer to your question, I have a lot of stories and information that never made it into the films. And at age 66, I just figured I'm going to write this stuff down mm. and hope and hope that some publisher sees value in it and that people want to read it. And yeah. the odd part about it for me is that for 40 years, I completely, except for my name at the end of the film, I kept myself out of the film. It was all collaborative storytelling with these communities that was about their worldview and the, the worldview of the, um, the, you know, the violator colonial kind of exploiter people, which we tried to help, you know, create conflict in the films. Yeah. A, mem a memoir is like all about me. I really don't enjoy it very much. I really feel, I feel really conflicted about being a white man. And now I'm going to write a book about me. And it's just like, I really, I really don't like it. So it's very, it's a very interesting process. I've, I've learned that the stories are important enough that I have to slog my way through it, but I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I don't, yeah. I mean, I've written 500 pages, so I'm getting close, yeah. but I really, and, you know, with George Floyd being murdered, one of hundreds and hundreds um, it's even, you know, today the Sierra club came out and, you know, John Muir was a racist and they're starting to, you know, disassociate themselves from these white guys who, so, you know, it's, it's a strange world to be, uh, you know, an old white guy. And right. I don't want, I don't want to make any more of a big deal out of it than that. I have felt very fortunate and honored to be able to meet the people I've met and gain their trust and help tell stories and, and then show the films with them present. That's another thing. It's fine to have you see the film streaming, but yeah. for me as a filmmaker, the goal is to show the film to a live audience and have native people there to answer mm. questions and engage in, in a dialogue. And we've done much of that. Now, so now we're into the, we're into the zoom streaming world more. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, so that's my, that's my memoir story. Well, your film standing on sacred ground, I felt that they were so real and that you did such a great job of stepping out of the way and letting the people of their land tell their stories and I got to watch them enter into the beauty and the sacredness of their relationship with the earth you know and and I think that the big thing that really struck me Toby on episode one about pilgrims they are hoping for the western world to just see and adopt this shift from ownership to relationship to communion, you know, and I just kind of even am thinking about how even in North American side of the world, all the white people are coming and trying to proselytize and baptize all these people into their own colonial capital white religion. And 
I just saw this juxtaposition of a institutionalized way of quote unquote believing to the so much more without boundaries of communing with earth and dwelling in these these sacred lands without feeling like they they could give two shits if the hills are filled with gold you know what i mean <laughs> yeah and so anyway you just did such a great job with these films i could talk about these forever so the umbilical cord do you remember that episode yeah. can you talk about the altai republic and it's it's between russia and china why do they call that the umbilical cord of the earth? Well, they literally believe that the earth is connected to the cosmos mm. through, through what they in English can best describe as an as a energy, I was gonna call it like an energy channel, but, mm. like a, but they describe it as an umbilical cord. So it would be a non-physical connecting point where information flows so in so in a mother with a baby nutrients flow to the younger baby through the umbilical cord right and so what daniel says and what the shaman there say is that right there in the core center of the caracol valley is the place where this connecting point so it's the navel belly button right yeah. where this energy flow arrives at the earth from out there in the cosmos, mm. the universe. Mm. And so it literally is a place where shamans who want to receive information or journey elsewhere to another dimension would go and be and do ceremony. And um, it's also, it's an amazing landscape. If people watch the film, we don't describe it, but if you look at it, there's burials there that are 3,000 years old of really important people. They are placed on top of what people maybe could feel then, but it's an iron magnetite deposit of magnetic rock underneath. And there's a mountain there that to me looks a lot like Bear Butte the sacred mountain, mini mountain, east of the Black Hills, where Lakota mm. people go for vision quests. You go out in the plains and there's this amazing mountain that just kind of comes up out of the ground. So they would go do vision quests there. Well, right in the middle of the Caracol Valley, in the floor of the valley, is a, is a little Bear Butte type, you know, there's just this little mountain there. And then all around it are standing stones, which mm. the Altaians have put up there. And then if you look kind of towards the uh, north, as you look through that valley floor, is the sacred mountain Uchinmec at the end of the valley, kind of looking down on this whole umbilical cord, you know, place. So I don't know where the, I don't know exactly where the boundaries are of, you know, how big and, but, you know, Daniil Mamuyev and some Russian scientists have, you know, in their way, you know, like, so they wrote psychic discoveries in the, in, in the, in the iron, behind the iron curtain or in Russia or whatever, you know, there's, there's this weird Russian component of science that's into the, you know, ESP and, well, so Russian scientists have gone with Daniil to these burial sites and they say that they've measured, you know, the movement of the magnetic energy in that place. And mm. that, and Daniil says that the burials are there because 
of the magnetic power and that they actually brought rocks in to put around the deceased shaman leaders that magnify further the, mag the, the, the energy of the place. And that when archaeologists went in and dug them up and took out the gold and yeah. scattered the rocks, that the energy is really confused and it's really not, not positive. But that if you go to an undisturbed burial, Kurgan, if a human being goes there in the right spirit, and then you measure their kind of their aura, they're healthier, happier, and healed when they're after being there than when they arrived there. Wow. So that's, and Daniil says that, you know, they can do Curlian photography and measure this stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a Western skeptic. So I hear all this. I just pass it on, <laughs> right? Okay. This is what Daniil tells me. Yeah, but, right. But I can tell you, it's one of the most powerful places I have ever seen or visited. Wow. And, and it's mm. thousands of years of cultural honoring of mm. this place. And I have been wow. to a fire ceremony there. I've seen a whole bunch of shaman from all over Asia get mm. together there i got to see what they did and it's like mm. this place is really powerful and wow so oddly and interestingly though just to sort of take the metaphor one step further the final story in the film is hawaii right yes and and we so we filmed on the island of kaho olave and kaho olave is described as the pico like the baby mm. and the mother is Mauna Kea, which is where the, con the conflict is these days about the telescopes. So in a really interesting way, you have a mama volcano and a baby volcano that are connected by an umbilical cord. There's an energy connection between Kaho'olawe as the pico, as the baby, and the island, if you look at it from an aerial photo, actually looks like a little fetus kind of curled up. And that's the cultural knowledge about the place. They call it the baby. And it's a small, it's a little volcano, didn't amount to much compared to the other ones, but it was sacred. It is sacred. It was, it was you know, it's named after Kanaloa, the ocean god, and it was a place of learning navigation. And so it's, to me, it's just, even though we want to accentuate the differences between indigenous cultures and how they relate to land and what their traditions are, Hawaiian ceremonies really different from the shamanism of Altai. But mm. here they have this, you know, the best way they can describe it is there's an energy flow between these sacred beings and they're alive. And if humans are respectful, we can listen there and we can yes. hear what, and you know, the way Vine Deloria describes it in, in the light of reverence is people who can listen, go there to get direction. You know, one of the mm. most important functions of sacred places is that they teach and they give direction. And if people wow. are there in the right spirit, they can figure out, as Vine says, how can we adjust to the world the way it is right now, the mess we've made and change our ways so that we can survive and we can help the rest of life survive. And so to me, that's one reason sacred places are important right now and why the indigenous culture should be left alone to hear yes. these messages and do their ceremony. And then if they want to tell us about it, fine. If they want to just yeah. keep it a secret so they can survive what, what may destroy the rest of 
people, which I think people are realizing right now, oh, that's actually possible. <laughs> oh, we're kind of fucking this thing up. <laughs> yeah, a little, one thing that Vine Deloria said that really stuck out to me, how he just talks about Westerners are so focused on a rights-based society versus a responsibility-based society. So we think it's our right, it's a national law that this is a free country and this is our land. And so we can tell you that we're not allowed to climb on your devil's tower, but it's a federal crime for anybody to climb on four white capitalist politician presidents on Mount Rushmore. That sounds a little (laughs) skewed and off kilter, if you ask me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you've tuned into the core issue, which is mm. responsibility held by a community in connection to land over a really long period of time yields mm. a certain value system and a way of being and a focus on individual rights where it's guided by a Bible that says your mission is to dominate you know, nature leads to what we have now. And, you know, Trump, when he was at Mount Rushmore, said he invoked manifest destiny one more time. And manifest destiny is something we figured out 30, 40, 50 years ago was an embarrassment. And it it was like the core of the problem because manifest destiny says that the individual Christian man has the right to do whatever they want because God has given him the authority to dominate women, Native Americans, slaves. You know, so the individual rights versus the community responsibility is the conversation underneath this whole mess that we have. And the problem with community for the individual is that it puts restraints on. Hmm. It restrains behavior. Usually it's a matriarchy, you know. And it's elders and spiritual people who basically try to control the young, crazy men, you know, who just want to go to war. Um, and that, and and so that community responsibility and how it functions is really worth looking at. And yeah. and if you if you consider humans to be teensy little elements in the landscape, and that actually the mountain and the river, you know, and the water source are the authorities. The way in Peru, for example, you know, um, I mean, at Mount Shasta, when the spring dried up, one of the, you know, Colleen could say, we didn't put it in the film, but she said, this is climate change. What Mm. we did put it, because we didn't want to, we just didn't want to distract people at that moment from Mm -hmm. that. But what she then said was, this dried up because we're not doing our responsibility properly. We're not praying correctly. So in, in Peru, when they look at those glaciers disappearing, they take it personally. They feel like they have let the mountains down, the apus, mm. the spirits. You know, they have failed in their cultural obligation. And that the reason the glacier, ironically, the reason the glaciers are drying up is because they have failed to take care of the mountains, right? And to show the right kind of relationship and deference to the mountains. And, you know, the irony being, of course, it's cars and factories and, you know, all the stuff we're doing here that's making their glaciers disappear. And when the glaciers disappear, the water that has sustained people for thousands of years is just gonna dry up. They'll melt 
and then it'll be dry and thousands of millions of people are going to be without the water. So again, it's interesting that indigenous people take cultural responsibility for that environmental disaster. It's a very humble approach, you know, to what's going on in the world. Yeah. I kind of want to go back around because I know that you feel this humility and the indigenous people you've had the privilege of being with, they've been reserved, right? Where is the space for that? I don't know if it's a baton or if it's a megaphone or whatever a film can do. The world is on fire and we all need to contribute to like putting it out. You know what I'm saying? So in those screenings where over all these years we've shown the films, you know, people are always like, what can I do? You know, there's always this like, you make a film to stir people up and then you have them asking, what can I do? And over all these years, it's, it's hard to, it's been hard to give a pretty good answer to that. I mean, in the original, back in the early days, when the story was, there's coal strip mining, raping the earth and destroying cultures. Um, you can recycle, you can conserve, you can, you know, uh, I mean, it was pretty basic back in the, in the beginning, you know, it's like use let, but we were aware that we were using the electricity that was causing the coal strip mine to be there. And so, you know, there was that conversation about, wow, take responsibility for the impact that our culture is having on the earth. That was one thing that's purely environmental. Um, as as it went on over the years, I found myself uh, within the light of reverence. One time, someone asked that question, and I I just heard these words kind of come out of my mouth, which were, "Work under the leadership of native people where you live, to restore or protect a sacred place." Mm. And it it was kind of like a, a like a light bulb went on. I felt like, oh, that's the best thing that I've ever been able to come up with in terms of how we might move forward. Because if, if the people of the dominant culture or any community would honor the people who've been in a place the longest and support their cultural survival and their language and their ceremonies, and this is true all over the world. Yeah. You know, we've had colonialism for 500 years, screw everything up, create all these artificial boundaries um, even the good news national park protected area movement is a racist scientific imposition on the land. I work to protect land. I work to create protected areas. But as we've done that, we've realized, well, wait a minute, there are sacred places in there and there are people mm -hmm. in there. And the scientists would just as soon move the native people out and say that they're poachers. And the fact Damn. is they were living there in, in harmony with that land, with the medicinal plants and co-evolutionary fire management, you know, relationship for years and years. We missed the fire management part for a hundred years. Um, so, you know, having indigenous people, people of color, African-Americans at the table with real power to guide where we go uh, yes. to me is is pretty much part of the answer. But to me, the other piece of this is honoring a view. It's, it's like the rights of nature movement now, where mm. the land is 
there was, you know, there was a book, Rod Nash wrote a book, Wilderness in the American Mind back in the 60s. And the big news, the big thing about that was that rights would be, that wilderness would be valued, wilderness mm. being a problematic concept, but that rights would eventually be extended beyond people, mm. you know, and that it would be other species and the Endangered Species Act was kind of a step in that direction. But this, the rights of nature movement, which would give a river as, you know, the same rights as a corporation or a person, is, is kind of the furthest we've gone yet thinking about this to say people need to rethink our relationship to the earth and what we have the right or responsibility to do. And, and I just think Native people should be in the leadership of that conversation and that sacred places because they're all over the world. And from my experience, there are places that are just really powerful. There are some really special places. And people have, over the years, all over the earth, have acknowledged that there's something going on at certain places. There's a confluence of energy, sort of like acupuncture in the human body. And that, and that it would be really good in our economic development plans and in science to incorporate whatever that is, with some, with some sense of respect and acknowledgement. And that's different from human rights. That's not, so it's the shaman who's saying that mountain is sacred. Mm. But the mountain being sacred is way beyond the shaman saying it. It's not about his or her rights or his or her Ooh. language. They're trying to point out a reality to us that was true 100, 100 years ago, true 100 years from now. And if we could just get into harmony with that, yeah. Things might change. Things might be and, better. And true a hundred million years ago. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like always seeking to get to the heart of the heart of the heart of the heart. Like what's the foundational issue that we won't get distracted by the quote unquote things we can do to make ourselves feel like we're doing something to you know sleep better at night, but like the core of the core of the core of the issue. And to me, it just still comes back to tying back to what you're saying, having someone from these nations at the table. It's something in one of your episodes, someone in Altai said, with intimacy comes strength. Yeah, it's a very subtle, feminine insight, right? It's hard, yeah. it's hard to cut through the noise and the static and the one minute attention span and to me, the one of the hardest things about this COVID shelter at home thing, I love my home. I've really gotten sure. to know my home, but um, it's, it's kept me from really feeling good being out in nature. When I go to my local park in Berkeley, there's a whole lot of other people there and many of them aren't wearing masks. And it's just kind of like, you know, the, the whole vibe is so weird. And so um, I think, you know, that what you just described as a state of being and a state of mind, it's pretty, it's tricky to pull it off in an urban setting. I mean, I'm all for sacred sites in urban parks and people having gardens and being, you know, living these values. But, you know, there's a reason that indigenous communities are more village level centered. You know, it's a more ecological, you know, in a watershed way of being. Um, and I think it, you know, it, it means we have to redesign our cities. We have to rethink everything kind of from the ground up. But, the, but there are so many people now that it's just, it's kind of, 
and it creates a, in terms of like democracy, right? It just creates this overwhelming drive for nickel and cobalt, you know? And it just, just, it drowns out this subtle conversation about intimacy and listening to the earth. And, you know, that starts to be a kind of a privileged attitude, really, you know, that's, yeah. which is, that's too bad. It's just, it's just hard. It's part why this conversation is so difficult. I want to just say one thing about what we'll come back to this, but um, you know, the interesting thing about Papua New Guinea in that, in that story was that the alien invading force is the Chinese government. So we were able to go to a different part of the world where it's not just Euro American corporate greed you know, hurting Native Americans or enslaving African Americans from European colonialism. It's a Chinese military-owned mining company that can look at a mineral deposit that the Australians looked at and said, no, no, we can't mine that because we can't make money at it. The Chinese can go in there and say, well, we don't need to make money. We want the cobalt and we want the nickel. And the government can subsidize getting it out because we want the resource. We're not capitalism. We're going we're gonna to get it. And what does that lead to? It leads to cutting corners everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So that the pipelines that we saw to carry the slurry of the, from the mine all the way down to the coast were these weird plastic pipes on sandbags in water courses, they break open and they spill, you know, and they don't really care. They'll just send people out there to fix the broken pipeline. Where are they putting the waste from this whole thing? Right into the ocean, right down where the fish are and the coral reefs, right into the ocean, very cheap, out of sight, out of mind. The other interesting thing, and I say this with some sensitivity, but the other interesting thing about the Chinese shipping thousands of Chinese people into Papua New Guinea to build a mine and a refinery is that you get to see racism in a completely different context. You see superior thinking Chinese people looking down on the black Papua New Guinean population, many of whom live off the land, barefoot, eat the fish. They live in a tropical, you know, paradise in little villages yeah. with grass huts and there's a million eels go up the river and they harvest the eels and you know, and they've been colonized, you know, for a few hundred years. But the Chinese coming in is a new wave of colonization. And they're they're bribing the politicians. And um, it's just it's just another story. You know, you, you hear that they're doing that in Africa and so forth. But it was really interesting to go to a country where they're trying to hold on to their sense that the river is sacred. And it doesn't matter to them who's polluting it because it's polluting their source of life. Yeah. And um, we got to witness this other kind of racism. And so mm. I just think this, this whole American bubble, you know, this whole thing, I mean, I get, I get that slavery was evil and yes. we have to atone for it and people have yes. suffered and, and feel trauma from it all the way to today. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I feel like I, I, try, I try to get that, but this is a global mess that's related to domination and technology and greed and they're burning a lot of coal in china as well 
And so this is where that thing about the Paris Accords and you know the whole planet getting together to deal yeah. with this problem really, really needs some attention and some focus because there's indigenous people all over the world. There's racism all over the world. There's corporate greed and, and pollution being dumped all over the world. You know, we got a big change that we need to make. And yes. I think it's, it's really important to keep the big picture in mind as we deal with, I mean, I'm, it's heartening that, you know, one police murder caught on a cell phone in Minneapolis, yeah. like Standing Rock, would, mm. would blow up into a, an international awakening. Yes. You know, and um, I hope it really changes things. And it's, oh, um, and I, I think people, and now that we're a couple months down the road, I think people are starting to get the interconnectedness of all these illnesses. Yes. You know, this pandemic is a manifestation. This is the earth saying, you people are invading places you shouldn't with the wrong attitude and you can't even handle this. You, you kind of deserve to wake up and suffer some and try to figure out what's going on. And the earth is telling us to slow down and pay slow attention. Down. And it's yeah. drawing attention to the, I mean, United States, we thought we were such a enlightened, you know, great, we can organize anything. We can do anything. We can't even organize this pandemic and put. Yeah. Pandemic. Pretty pathetic. It's sad. Yeah. And so really many sad. people are dying, you know, so many people are dying. Anyway, have you felt anything from indigenous people in this land today that are like, don't forget about us. Maybe they're not like that. Um, my observation is that <clears throat> indigenous people figured out really quickly in this moment that they, and they're, they're humble and tend to be, you know, quiet in a lot of ways, um, was to, to sort of sit back and say, this is not a moment to try to, to, try to get attention for the wow. injustices, the hundreds of thousands of genocidal murders of indigenous people millions mm. of them um but that this is a this is a moment for a, a different injustice multiple you know from slavery to police killings and and yeah. you know the, the the prison system to really be looked at and even in you mm. know the, the to, to your point about global my point too global complexity let the united states simmer in this and suffer mm. from this and deal with this right now Mm. Um, as yeah. months have gone on, um, you know, I went to Alcatraz Thanksgiving shortly after, um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. Right. Mm. And that was a similar moment. And it might've been an early example of black lives matter folks going to Alcatraz and native people and African-Americans standing at the microphone at sunrise and talking about mutually reinforcing and collaborating and strategizing, mm. which I, I got goosebumps at that moment because, you know, this is a delicate thing for like a white guy to talk about, I feel right. But, yeah. It's like in a in a racist colonial system if a few crumbs are sort of pushed off the table it just it makes it really difficult for people who have been um 
disadvantaged and colonized and don't have resources to suddenly become great allies and work together. And, mm. and you know, it creates a competitive, mis, you know, difficult situation. And so I will just personally say that we released Standing on Sacred Ground into the post-Ferguson environment, 2014. Wow. And what I got to watch was, okay, I'm a journalist, I'm a documentary filmmaker. <clears throat> My mentor at UC Berkeley Journalism School was Ben Bagdikian. He was writing the book, The Media Monopoly. He was trying hmm. to tell people, there's a very small number of corporations that are taking over all these diverse media outlets. This is really bad for the truth. And I don't have the numbers, but then it was like seven or 10 companies were taken. Now it's down to, a, you know, the, the, the consolidation of control over the media and, and, the, and the example of Fox News being able to create a totally alternative reality is now really upon us. But, mm. but having said that, to have a film that's about a global indigenous worldview and rights struggle about spirituality and land and mm. the real history and injustice and to bring that into an American market when the journalists couldn't deal with Black Lives Matter and with police violence meant that me trying to get a bit of publicity for our stories, I knew right from the start, it's not going to happen. We're, we're putting a complicated story out into a really confused country that can't even deal with enslavement. And, you know, it took 1619, the New York Times piece, it took it, you know, three more years, five more years for that to come out. And for the, the writers and the editors and the researchers and the, and the overlords to allow it, you know, whatever the hell happened. Overlords. Um, and, and so my take is that America has two really profound original sins and historically one of them really did start happening sooner. Native Americans were enslaved and murdered and African slaves were brought in on right on top of that. It definitely started together, same system, but the stealing of the land, the entire North American continent, the way it was taken, the lies that were told, the treaties that mm. were never honored. Um, it's a pretty big story, you know, but for America to deal with, you know, and, and, and amongst Native Americans, you know, there's 540 some odd federally recognized tribes. I work really closely with tribes that are not recognized. There's hundreds of unrecognized cultures still surviving. It's really complicated. And every place has the genocide and the theft of the land still in the ground. I mean, right now still in Berkeley, we are in Berkeley. Um, a, local, a local story is that after going all over the world, you know, from Berkeley, Ethiopia, Hawaii, you know, Altai, I came back to Berkeley and we discovered that the oldest village site on San Francisco Bay of the Ohlone people, which was inhabited for 5,000 years, lo and behold, it was right here in Berkeley where the freshwater creek, Strawberry Creek, that flows through the UC Berkeley campus flows mm. into the bay with a really beautiful view of Alcatraz and, the, and what they call the Western Gate, not the Golden Gate, but the opening 
to the Pacific, you know, like a spirit pathway for the alone Earth people. Canal. Yeah, that the oldest village site was proposed for a five-story condominium that was going to dig down 10 feet and definitely unearth graves, burials. So oh for the last three years, I've been able to stay at home and work, as I said before, work under the leadership of the local indigenous people to help protect or restore a sacred place. So we've been fighting for this place for, for three or four years. We're in court. The city of Berkeley is totally on the side of protecting it. We have a great vision to build a park there and actually maybe provide a place for UC Berkeley to rebury the 10, 15,000 they have like 10 or 15,000 sets of human remains there at Berkeley. So th what I started by saying was every American community has a history in the soil that they don't know anything about, that they, that, that they have, that they're oblivious to. And my feeling, and Winona LaDuke, good friend of mine, who's in the film, Nelson Mandela, you know, the oppressor has wounds and traumas in families, and in institutions like churches mm. and in, in, in buildings and in the, in, even in the statues and the names, this is a really big process of actually acknowledging the real history of the places we live in. I mean, everybody in America should go out and figure out who owned, whose land was that communally held? How did it get taken away? Yeah. Where were the village sites to be respected and left alone? Because there's a lot of people buried there. Mm. And uh, is there any way to make it right? But the first thing is to ask who was here? How did they steal the land? Were my ancestors part of that? You know, if I've been here seven generations, my great, 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 great grandfather might have been part of it, you know, and, and then maybe they had slaves too. Yeah. And so every community, every community needs to deal with this. There's a, there's a UCLA professor, Benjamin Madley, who wrote a book called American Genocide uh, mm. a couple of years ago. After all these years, I mean, definitely some scholars have been pointing out that the gold rush invoked started a, a genocide in California. But this guy wrote the book about every killing of every native person in California as a result of the gold rush and how the government paid for it. The whole state is based on killing Indians to get their land. Well, they would pay bounty hunters, right? Exactly. They paid millions of dollars. And when the state had to front the money yeah. to the militias, the feds reimbursed them. So it was a state oh. originated genocide that was subsidized by the federal government. Millions of dollars, thousands of tens of thousands of documented murders. And so it's like this book comes out and it, it just, you know, it starts a conversation that is a really, I mean, Gavin Newsom, our governor, mm -hmm. he uh, took it. It took until he came into office for him to stand up and apologize for the genocide, recognize it, and say, "We need a truth and reconciliation commission to look at this history." You know the way they have in many countries like South Africa. We've never yeah. done that in this country, and it's you know they've done it in Canada, and it was a really emotional, painful in Canada and in Australia mm -hmm. when they did it. Interestingly, what they did was they acknowledged the theft of children from families by white Christians who stole the children in Aboriginal Australia 
and in Canada and put them into boarding schools, Christian boarding schools, and usually then into foster homes, you know, get them out of the village, give them to white people. And that was a, that was a a heinous crime that needed to be apologized for. But in both Canada and Australia, the apology was about the stealing of children. It was not about the stealing of the land, which I think, you know, so it's like, good, a baby, that's a really big step, but it was only a baby step because these millions and millions of dollars of real estate that we fight over and live on and garden were all stolen and people were killed to get the land. So there's this history that's underneath this Black Lives Matter movement and the Standing Rock Alcatraz, you know, this history of resistance to colonialism that is uh, pretty powerful, pretty complicated, you know? What's the big why? Why have you not hung up your work and put it in a closet and just moved on to do something else? Because this is too exhausting and the hill is too steep of a climb. I think, you know, the, the earth has given us a gift, right? Has given us life. And um, we have a responsibility to our mother to yeah. be respectful and to be pr- try to be protective and try to be constructive mm-hmm. and helpful. And uh, I will say that I feel that in various languages, I've heard the earth cry out, you know, and ask for help and encourage those who are helping or doing positive things. And I've seen that enough to feel gratitude and you know i've worked with joanna macy uh, who lives in berkeley um quite a bit and i think that the grief and sadness that i have seen and shared and felt and you know when we filmed the tar sands segment of of that film we came back pretty traumatized i mean i i have definitely gone out into the belly of the beast a few times and Mm. um but what Joanna has helped some of us all over the world see over many years is that, you know, grief is grounded in love and caring, mm. you know, and, and a sense of um, fear and injustice comes from a desire for justice and, and fairness mm. and, and the right outcome. And so, you know, I, I feel like I've tried to, when I feel sad and grieving, I try to remember that, I have been given so much and I have this one life to try to be helpful and constructive and the generosity of um, native people has been a real bright light for me. I feel like, wow, if, if, if you folks can put up with this kind of murder and racism over hundreds of years and every single day in the grocery store, who am I to complain about, you know, my petty, uh, worries, I would like to serve the bigger cause. And to me, the mm. bigger cause is is this one planet that we have that is so miraculous and that we have this one chance to try to straighten things out. Um, you know, the, the many cultures, but the Hopi is where I kind of got my start. And for them, it's very second nature that humanity has included, in other words, they, have failed repeatedly over thousands of years, that people have wandered off the path 
of right living into some tangential mistake over and over and over four times. And we we're doing it again. And the Hopi, you know, the leaders there for years have been sort of issuing these warnings saying greed and disrespect and violence amongst people is a real warning sign that we're on the wrong track. And our culture has taken it to the level of raping and destroying the earth. I mean, mm-hmm. what culture would pollute our water at the source everywhere? Yeah. And I mean, I was just reading today, there's this article in the, in the I guess it was the New York Times about how scientists are, have linked the flaring of oil rigs and, the, and the, what, what goes on at oil wells all through Texas with premature births. So women who live downwind of these flaring gas rigs are giving birth two, three weeks early to kids, to babies. And you just read that and you think, what culture would do that, let alone then argue about it? Like now that science is going to, the oil industry is going to, you know, do, you know, the science, the people who issued the report, their lives are probably in danger. But, you know, we're polluting our air and breathing it in. And it's like it's a massive suicide, cultural suicide. And this is what the Hopi, you know, they've been saying this for years. And for them, the sign that we'd really gone too far was blowing up an atom bomb in New Mexico and then blowing two atom bombs up in Japan and then testing them in Nevada and in the, in the, de- in the ocean and all over you know, the Altai, it's interesting, as I did my research, the Russians blew up their atom bombs in Kazakhstan. And it was, and the, so the Altaians are the downwinders as the Utah and New Mexico and Hopi and the Navajo, most of that Nevada test site stuff blew over Utah and then on to, you know, where I was a kid in Long Island. Um, but we've got a serious blindness going on in this culture to contamination of our nest. And so I guess the answer to your question is I've, for 40 years, I've just felt this visceral reaction to trying to say, this is absurd. You know, so I go out with my camera and I take pictures of it and I try to show it to people and say, how does this make you feel, right? Like, what do you think about this? And, And will you listen to these indigenous people's comments about, what it is we're doing because i think they have the best perspective so i I guess my motivation is really um the cry of the earth you know hearing the cry of the earth and trying to say we can do a lot better than this (laughs) it's just ironic a lot of americans consider their holy land on another continent in the middle east but they've lost respect for the one that they're benefiting from you know on a daily basis Projecting the Holy Land over there is very similar to projecting a deity, you know, out there. And that there's, because it frees us up to do what we want, subject to, you know, God looking over our shoulder and sending us to hell. But um, I just think indigenous people have, are so tuned into their environment that they totally you know, it's not like the earth is alive. It's like the earth is the, the earth is alive. You know, the birds that are buzzing right in your face and, you know, the 
the, the signs from nature and the way we interact. It's just, it's all vital living, communicating trees and forests, you know, helping each other by sending signals. There's all this incredible life going on around us that people are just one small part of. And um, we have bought, I mean, listening to you talk a few minutes ago, I, I was just realizing that one of the benefits of this whole thing about fake news is that sometimes you like look at history or you look at the things we're told and you realize we've been believing fake news for a really long time. We have, we have absorbed, I mean, history, history, a lot of the history we've been taught is really fake news. It was, it was just made up to justify what was done. And that's a painful thing to acknowledge and it's scary as hell. And I think indigenous people have, heard that and known that for a really long time. And when people show up who are willing to kind of say, yeah, I agree, then they kind of go, okay, let's just talk a little bit, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe we can work together and hopefully there'll be more of that I hope in the future, so. you know? I really hope so. Any last golden nugget you want to just pass on from your work and where you stand today in terms of your hopes for what all of this will hopefully manifest? I draw a blank, you know, so mm-hmm. whatever comes, whatever comes out of me, um, I just feel that we're at a real turning point right now. And that those of us who are alive are um, in a really interesting moment. I mean, I have kids who are in their early twenties. Mm. Um, I mean, I really feel for the parents with young kids who mm. are juggling jobs and school. Yeah. I don't know how they can pay attention to what's going on. I have kids in my, in their twenties I feel for kids in the situation of trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life right now? Because it all just got flipped over and climate change was already kind of a existential threat. Um, I feel fortunate to be, you know, in my six mid sixties and feeling like, Oh, I'm kind of lucky right now. I'm with my wife in our nice house and we're looking out at a completely tipping point moment. Mm. if I don't die from COVID, I might get to see, a, you know, either we're going to descend into fascism or <laughs> we're going to turn the corner and, and realize that we have to really fundamentally change. And mm. I'm hoping to see and be part of the turnaround. I mean, I think for me, yes. as I've watched, you know, doing this work has been a bit of a thankless task all these mm. years. I mean, I'm really heartened. I appreciate that you watched the four hours of the Standing on Sacred Ground series because most people don't want to watch four hours of difficult mm. storytelling. And, you know, In the Light of Reverence for us was a, it was a real success. You know, four million people watched it on PBS and it's 20 years later, still used in college classes all over the country. And so when Standing Rock happened, <clears throat> I got to feel a little bit like, oh, okay, the storytelling that we have done and the risks that people like Vine Deloria took being interviewed, because he didn't do interviews. But he, did, he did an amazing interview with us and he is the guide through that film in the light of reverence. And I've had, I've had some young Native Americans come up to me and say, you know, I was in New York and I was gonna become a whatever and when I saw that film, I decided to go back home and work, work in my community. Wow. And so I get chills when I think of that, that like, okay. And, and, you know, we have done a little bit of education of our own 
urban, intellectual, non-Native American world. And yeah. so when Standing Rock happened, I felt a little bit like, okay, education works. Somehow from the 1990s, when I couldn't raise a dime, well, I could raise a dime. I could raise minimal amounts of money to film a, go film a ceremony and then come back and do the horrible thing of showing that footage to raise more money. But there was no interest in sacred places in the 1990s, very little. And then In the Light of Reverence was on PBS. And then, you know, 15 years later, Standing Rock happens and young college students are going there to help and people in the cities are opening their piggy banks and donating money and sending sleeping bags. And it was like, oh, people understand that water is sacred, that native people have treaty rights, pipelines are polluting, and the indigenous people should be supported in their protection of the river. And um, Earth Justice was there for, for the Standing Rock Sioux people. And I got to sit back and go, maybe we've made a little bit of a difference. You know, mm. maybe the, the struggle to, you know, the, the risk that the Hopi and the Winnemum, you know, and everybody took letting us film and the collaboration in the editing and the storytelling. And even though PBS, they put us in, you know, Saturday night at 11 o'clock and Monday morning, 4, 4 a.m. You know, they brought, you know, we get broadcast at weird times all over the country. We're in line for a national broadcast with Standing on Sacred Ground and some white lawyer in D.C. basically vetoed it because he claimed that we were, you know, we had a point of view. We were, we were activists. We were not objective. And <clears throat> so we got relegated to a lower PBS level. But so what? You know, the films are in schools, the films are streaming online now, you watch them. It, you know, it's a long-term public education storytelling process. And so, you know, it feels like, okay, it was worth it. <laughs> and I've been really honored to be part of the, the storytelling and the hanging around amazing people at their sacred places, mm. experiencing what happens there and how powerful it is and how important it is and how it's a global network of sacred places that we need to understand and respect because the earth's energy system is much more complicated than we understand, but indigenous people get it. Even mm -hmm. if they're at Mount Achaia or Mount Shasta or, or Uchinmec and Altai, and because they didn't have the internet and they didn't have jets to travel around, they felt like this is really important, us taking care of this, this energy here, this umbilical cord, you know, where the earth gets its information and vitality. We're going to take care of it because it's part of a bigger system. Mm. And maybe science sometime will start to respect that. Even if we can't measure it, we can respect it. And I feel like that's part, that's the mystery that I'm investigating and don't understand to this day. Yeah. Don't understand it. But that's what the indigenous people say. And I think they're right. I think they're telling the truth and we should listen. Yeah, well, I'm a huge fan of a, a poet in the UK. He wrote a, his name is Martin Shaw. He wrote a book called Courting the Wild Twin. And there's one thing that stuck out. He said, always be skeptical of the quick route. And there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of years of them waiting with Mother Earth with messages for us. And I think that you, Toby, were patient enough to just wait around and respect them and want to honor them, but also kind of carry their message to the rest of the world that might not have heard it otherwise. 
So you have done a mighty work in what you've accomplished in these films. It's very evident you are not in a hurry and there's just this really special energy that comes out of it and it's authentic and I really, really hope people can watch these films. I really do. Are, are they all available through your website, thestandingonsacredland.org? Number one, I, the first thing I want to say is that thank you. It's been great talking with you. I feel like you really get you know, what the message and the, you know, the importance of this. I want to acknowledge that I get credit for these films, and it was a collaboration of mm. writers, my wife, Jessica Abbey, um, in the light of reverence, Melinda Maynard, who's a Lumbee, uh, who was a rising history professor who had who had not gotten her PhD yet, but who spent years trying to help us make the best film we could. Will Perinello, hmm. Andy Black, editors and cameramen. I mean, um, a whole lot of people put a lot of energy in on top of and in, in collaboration with the indigenous folks who trusted us to come in and film there. Um, so yeah, we have a 20-year educational evolutionary website which is sacredland.org which is the sacred land film projects website and when we finished standing on sacred ground a four-part series we decided that film series should have a website of its own because we had high hopes for that web that film really going places which it has but so over yet so no it's gonna the if In the Light of Reverence is still being shown at 20 years later, I feel like Standing on Sacred Ground just hasn't meet, met its moment yet, you know? One person at a time, you know? It's, yep. it's, um, it's slow and steady, just like Martin Shaw said. Yes. So um, we have a second website, which is standingonsacredground.org. And you can get to either website from both, from both websites. And toggle so. between them, okay. Yeah, so people Beautiful. can, we have a, on the Sacred Land Film Project website, we have a history timeline that takes you through what I consider to be like the one or two hundred things that have happened mm. that led that led to Standing Rock and have wow. led you know le- that are really important. All of Vine Deloria's books and you know films like Avatar. You know what's going on here? There's something going on here. You know, we have a map of uh, 120 sacred places around the world where mm. we go into depth about what's happened there. Are they threatened or are they protected? What are the lessons that have been learned from the, the many places that have been protected? Um, we have photos and film clips and all kinds of resources for students and teachers and stuff. So we have a lot going on on our websites. Amazing. A super important message just for us as human beings, you know. So a huge thanks to, to you, Toby. Really appreciate your time, man. It's, it's really huge. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Ben. Me too. Yeah. I, appre- I really appreciate the time and the depth of your sensitivity to these issues. And so it's been great being with you. Likewise. Thank you. I look, look forward to it. Okay. All right. Peace Take to care. you, Toby. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more information on Toby's ongoing work, visit standingonsacredground.org and sacredland.org. Also, please consider donating to Toby's current projects at shellmound.org and winnemumwintu.us, W-I-N-N-E-M-E-M-W-I-N-T-U.us. Also, you can visit my website, knittedheart.com, to hear previous episodes, investigate further resources, and hear more about my ongoing work as a filmmaker. If you like what you hear, 
please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. This is the best way to spread the good word, which allows me to constantly broaden my reach with future episodes. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.